Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. I'm Matt Lynch here at Regent College in Vancouver, British Columbia. I'm a co-host along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, and Amy Brown-Hughes. We're a collective of biblical scholars and theologians who are interested in the intersection of biblical studies and theology. And I think you'll get a taste of that in today's episode with J. Todd Billings, who's going to be talking uh, to us about um, the end of the Christian life. And, and this is a, a subject that's very close to home for Todd. Uh, and I, you'll hear a bit of his story and why this is not just a, a detached academic exercise for him, but something that he lives and believes and embodies. So thanks so much for listening. If you get a chance, give us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. We'd appreciate that. If you'd like to donate to the show, you can go to onscript.study forward slash donate. And we just appreciate you listening. Enjoy the episode. Hello, OnScripters. Our guest today is Dr. J. Todd Billings, who is the Gordon H. Gerard Research Professor of Reformed Theology at Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan. He's an ordained minister in the Reformed Church in America. He received his MDiv from Fuller Seminary and his PhD from Harvard. He's the author of seven books. Is that right, Todd? Seven books? Yeah, depending on how you got them, but um, <laughs> one of them is a co-edited book. Yeah, I was going to say more than six books. Um, okay. Including The Word of God for the People of God, an Entryway to the Theological Interpretation of Scripture, Calvin's Theology and Its Reception, Rejoicing in Lament, and the book we're discussing today, which is The End of the Christian Life, How Embracing Our Mortality Frees Us to Truly Live published by Brazos just last year. Todd, welcome to OnScript. It's great to be with you, Matt. Uh, before we, we talk about your book and a bit of your story, uh, I want to just say that as I looked over uh, the list of books you published, um, I think you're hard to categorize. And uh, you've, you've, um, you're a theologian who engages deeply in academic work and popular level work, work geared toward general Christian audiences, Christians in ministry, and then as I read The End of the Christian Life, I realized you're doing a lot of um, interdisciplinary work in sociology, psychology, biblical studies, theology. So as you look over your journey as a Christian scholar, what are the unifying threads uh, for you that, that kind of weave their way through all your work? And what do you think accounts for your willingness to engage so broadly? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think that two things that I, two topics that I have been really interested in for a long time are, on the one hand, union with Christ, participation in Christ, and the cluster of themes of what it means to be in Christ. And so I've been very interested in that biblically, in the tradition, especially um, in the Reformation, some of the contemporary discussions, and also what it means to read the Bible as a Christian, as opposed to simply as a historian. And so both of those threads go back pretty far in my story. In fact, I met my wife, Rachel, or I got to know her partly in a very 
nerdy small group when I was at Harvard. Um, <laughs> I can imagine there are some nerdy small groups around Harvard. There are some very nerdy small groups in Cambridge, Massachusetts, in the in the graduate student housing. Um, but it was a theological interpretation of scripture reading group, and it was about half biblical studies PhD students and about half theologians. Um, and so, um, but even even back longer than that, I had I was deeply shaped by Gadamer um, as a philosophy major in my undergrad, and then had continuing interest in um, philosophical hermeneutics. And then at Fuller, working with John Thompson, I kind of discovered the history of biblical interpretation and just the wonder and all of the dynamics that that brings in. When I was at Harvard, one of my, my comprehensive exam area of choice was on theological hermeneutics. And then my other area related to participation in Christ. Then that's where I ended up writing about. And But then my next book was about theological hermeneutics, which wasn't a surprise to me, but might be a surprise to somebody looking at from the outside. And I still remember it was as an undergrad in Uganda that I was planning on going on for a PhD in philosophy, but I had a six-month internship in Uganda just working with a local community development group connected to the Church of Uganda, the Anglican Church in Uganda. And it was a very powerful experience just living with them, living in a grass-thatched, mud-floored hut, and seeking to learn from them and help them on their path. And I don't have a great inspirational story about how we saw everything change and transform, <laughs> but I did have a strong sense that, wow, doing reflection for the sake of the church and the church's ministry is so both <laughs> problematic in the sense that there's there's so many conundrums that come up just in the process of ministry in the Christian life. And yet, beautiful. What what could I do that could be more beautiful than that? Um, and so I changed my direction. And that's when I decided to go in the direction of theology. And so as I've encountered new things, and certainly experiences such as my own cancer diagnosis and things like that, I do so as somebody who's really curious, but also sees existential problems as an opportunity for theological reflection and for rediscovering the riches and depths of scripture. And so I think that in some ways I still lean into my work in a similar way, um, willing to learn from whatever discipline will help in giving theological reflection for the sake of the church and the church's ministry. And, and before we get to a bit of your personal story, and I, I want to talk about your cancer diagnosis, you, you, you know, we connected over our shared uh, love for the work of John Levinson. And uh, I assume you, you studied with him or had interaction with him at Harvard as he, oh, okay, you're holding up two uh, John Levinson books, C.S. Yeah, Sinai and Zion and Resurrection and Restoration of Israel. Fantastic books. So, and I was, I was so pleased uh, as I read your book to see how deeply you engage the Old Testament 
uh, in your work. Uh, I didn't count scripture references, but uh, I would hazard a guess that it's more than the New Testament even, uh, though you engage that as well. So, how did that come into the picture for you? you know, where, does, where does your passion for the Old Testament fit? And where did that come from? What were some of the influences there? Well, for one thing, I'm married to an Old Testament scholar. Um, that doesn't hurt. Okay, yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> that helps. I, I really think that it's what is characteristic of the type of Christian theology that I admire and want to do. <laughs> and so one of the things that fascinates me about um, Reformation exegesis of the Bible is its huge rediscovery of the Old Testament and the way in which I teach a class um, actually called Reading the Bible with the Dead, and it's on pre-modern biblical interpretation. And if you read um, Reformation exegetes side by side with various patristic and medieval, they're all really rich, but you can also see on certain passages and, and certain approaches that in the Reformation, there's just this energy about, wow, there is an Old Testament storyline here that matters and matters so much more than we had realized. And yet it is all still in Christ. And, you know, so it's this holding together of um, seeing the Old Testament as a place of discovery that is indispensable and yet it's not seen as just an ancient Israelite religion that we're trying to copy. <laughs> There's a Christology that is broad enough that it's all in Christ. <laughs> and, so, um, and so Calvin, for example, sets it out in his preface to his Psalms commentary and talks a lot about Christ there. And then in his actual um, commentary itself, he talks less about Christ than most of his contemporaries. He talks about David, but he's already said in his preface that every time he talks about David, he's also typologically speaking about Christ. And so there's, uh, I'm just, um, I guess I find it so spiritually nourishing both myself and the communities I've been a part of. And also I have the assessment that I think a lot of others share that so much of the contemporary church is so deeply Marcionite and that this is at the root of all sorts of problems that we have, especially um, problems of denying our mortality and denying our mortal limits. And so as soon as I decided I was going to read this or write this book, I made a pretty intentional decision. I want to really engage um, the Old Testament and try to discover some things that I didn't know. And so, yeah. And Todd, your diagnosis of, of having a, a terminal illness obviously plays an important backdrop for uh, this book, as well as the book you wrote before about rejoicing and lament. So I'm just wondering if you could share a bit of your story for our listeners who, who may not know um, your the journey that you've been on. Yeah, so in 2012, I was... 39, my wife and I had, our kids were one and three, and I was diagnosed with an incurable um, blood cancer and um, started some pretty intensive treatment and continue on chemotherapy treatment to this day. And 
you know, I'll need to stay on chemo as far as I know for the rest of my life. So that was definitely something that was unexpected and changed my outlook toward the future and how I experience the present. And fairly quickly, I was, I was diagnosed on a sabbatical actually, <laughs> and I put on the shelf that project and I did eventually finish that project. It's a book on the Lord's Supper that came out a couple years ago. But I put it on the shelf and I started doing a lot of reading and searching about lament. And I still remember some of the nurses, they were making jokes and stuff because I had, you know, some 600 page books with me when I had a quarantine. I used to have to explain the word quarantine to people, but now everybody knows what it means. But when you have a stem cell transplant, you have a quarantine for a number of months because you, your immune system is basically annihilated. So, so I was like, I'm going to have a lot of time by myself and sometime I'll feel sick and other times I'll be alert. I might as well be, you know, diving into these works. And Actually, with that process, too, a lot of my most pressing questions were biblical questions and in um, and a lot of them as well in the Old Testament. Um, I remember one of my calling one of my biblical studies colleagues from the hospital and he was just taken aback um, and we got over the you know, oh, how's it going today and that sort of stuff. And then I started to ask him about the scholarship on, you know, certain questions. So that's where some of my curiosity, um, curiosity runs. Now with this book, with the Rejoicing and Lament, there's a lot of engagement with the Psalms, uh, the book of Job, and the laments in the gospel and in and, and Jesus's um, lament in light of my cancer story and just showing how my cancer story fits into this much larger and dramatic and important story in Christ. The end of the Christian life doesn't really follow my cancer journey in any sort of narrative way. I give some examples from it, but what is more forefronted is the things that I have learned as a member of the cancer community, kind of like a cultural immersion into this community that I didn't know was there before. Yeah, you talk about being a participant observer. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I just, I truly am a nerd. I mean, you know, the bow tie and, and everything. Because once I started going to cancer meetings, I got to know people and develop relationships and friendships but I also just became curious, what what are these people like sociologically? And so I started to look and dive into the research and, you know, found, you know, cancer patients with cancers like my own that are serious and not curable. They are more religious than the general population by any measure, both in practice and belief. They um, are more religious than before their diagnosis. Um, and yet, 
sadly, um, there's also a lot of signs that the type of religion that we tend to buy into is kind of a form of the prosperity gospel. So, so that's some of how I started to go down the sociological track and then just kept on, kept on going um, as I found other things that were useful to make sense of this. And, and that religious um, impulse that characterizes the cancer community, is it also a prosperity type religion? Is yeah, that what you're saying? Unfortunately, it, yeah. it often is. I had a lot of anecdotal evidence for that. But when I looked at some of the studies, particularly among cancer patients, as it relates to extreme measures at the end of life and choosing for extreme measures in studies that are predominantly Christian, highly religious cancer patients are over three times as likely to ask for extreme measures. And they use this term in a specialized sense. This is not just, oh, another round of chemotherapy that could give you another six or eight months. These are treatments that have more like a lottery ticket chance of helping at all. And the, the patients, I, there have been a number of studies and each time the sociologists have just been puzzled because um, the patients always give religious reasons. Um, I wanted to give God another chance to heal me. I wanted to give God a chance for a miracle and things like this. Um, even though these measures on the whole, the people don't live any longer. And it also, because of their side effects, they're not actually to be able, they're not actually able to be present with family and loved ones at the end of their life. Yeah, and you, and you mentioned that among those who take these radical measures to extend life, their carers are three times as likely to experience extreme depression when co compared to those who care for people who don't. Yes, exactly. So. Good memory there, Matt. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, it was a, it was a striking uh, statistic. I actually wrote it down um, because it it gets at the, um, the 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 tension there with uh, wanting to embrace medicine and as a as a good thing as a good gift, but on the other hand, like you know, it, with with both accepting medicine or not accepting medicine, there's always this religious dimension to how we wrestle through that question, isn't there? Yeah, and I'm, I'm definitely not anti-medicine. Um, I do explore it in a, a chapter in the book, but I think that medicine is a good gift, but a tyrannical idol if it becomes our idol. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and what's the, what would you say is this kind of main thesis of your, your book? I would say that embracing our mortal limits throughout our life, whether we are young or old, is actually a key part of the path of Christian discipleship and helps us on this path of joy and sorrow as creatures before the Lord. And I think that's the, the thesis in relation to uh, mod many elements in modern culture and modern church culture that want to push our mortal limits to under the rug. Um, and want to make dying something that happens just to other people. And the uh, embracing our mortality. So uh, one thing that struck me as I read your book was, was that death denial is intimately related to life denial. 
as well, that that it's not just that you're either denying death or denying life, but that the two are tied up with one another. So how is it that embracing death, um, particularly from a biblical or theological perspective, how is it that embracing death frees us to live fully as well? There could be a number of ways to get at that. But one of the most fruitful ways that I found was through the discovery of what Levinson does with Shaul in both in his Resurrection and the Resur- and the Restoration of Israel book, and then the book that he co-authored with Kevin Madigan, who was on my committee at, at Harvard. I thought that they, the second one was just a popular version, um, but then when I went and read them, they actually have different, different content and some different points. But I think that in some of what Levinson sets up that is really helpful is that if one takes the geography of the Old Testament, um, and I'm not talking about historical geography here, but the geography of, on the one hand, there is the temple, which is the coming together of heaven and earth. Um, It's the center of the universe in some sense. I mean, there's Jerusalem, which is the center, and then there's the temple, and then there's the Holy of Holies. It's the center of the center of the center, the dwelling place of the God of Israel, who's also the God of the universe. And there's an opposite to the temple, and the the opposite is the dark pit, the Sha'ol, basically a place that seems separated and distant from the presence of God, from the temple. And I think that that geography is much more basic than biological living and biological death, which we get so preoccupied with. And by we here, I'm not pointing fingers. I'm saying we, including we cancer patients. I mean, if I got together tonight with several other patients with my same cancer, I guarantee that in the first 15 minutes, we will talk about when we had our stem cell transplant, we'll do the math, figure out who has lived the longest, and there will be a sense to the conversation, yeah, we're all rejoicing that the others are alive because we all know others who have died by this point with this cancer. But there's also a sense in which we're, we're kind of saying, the one who lives the longest wins. <laughs> like our goal is to live longer, um, no matter what. As opposed to the most basic question, are we living in the presence of God, which is also life um, or seeking that presence or in the pit? And I think my favorite example of that is Jonah, where the, the belly of the whale is is Shaul. And he doesn't just want to get out of the whale, he wants to go to the temple. I just love that. And so um, I think that's a basic reframing. Um, so it's very possible to be in favor of biological life in the sense of, I want to do everything possible to live longer but to not be particularly interested or engaged with what um, the Old Testament sets up as the center of life itself. 
um, the God of, of life um, in, in the temple. So, so given um, your experience in the cancer communities that you've been part of, what would you like to have the conversation center on when you get together um, with other cancer patients with regard to death and, and illness? What, what alternative would you propose there? Well, I mean, one funny thing about gatherings of cancer patients is that they're usually sponsored by a medical institution which says that they should be secular. So I've been asked to speak to groups of cancer patients, like about my lament book, and they say, you know, try to make this secular. Um, but then, you know, all the questions are just so thickly religious, even if they're from a wide range of religious um, perspectives. And so to some extent, it depends upon who the people are and what the setting is. But I think that the focus of the conversations would be more upon how have you been entering into life? Um, how have you been finding uh, ways to experience joy and sorrow in loving God and loving others on this path? How have you been able to find, how have you been able to be both a Christian witness and someone who is growing and learning? I mean, in some ways, maybe not that much different from a gathering of Christians, if it's Christians, you know, with without cancer, but with a little bit more urgency, a little bit more directness to it, just with an awareness that the, the future is quite uncertain. In your book, you, you talk about two uh, different Christian perspectives on death from uh, the early church, uh, one through the writings of the church father, Irenaeus, and the other through Augustine. So I'm just wondering if you could outline those two views and which you find most compelling or how you put the two together. I mean, basically, the two views are, on the one hand, the Augustinian view, where death is fundamentally unnatural, and it's an enemy that has sting. It's an enemy that will be final, finally conquered by Christ. But for Augustine, there's something even fundamentally irrational about death. Like if you observe the death of a friend or a stranger, and someone starts to say like, why this happened or why this happened now, or like what instrumental purpose it fills, Augustine would be one of those people who's who's like, oh, come on. Yeah. Don't make it fit the system, yeah. because um, if you do that, you don't lend it legitimacy. There, there, it's an open wound in, in some sense. And I think that that is a really important word um, that there's biblical support for. I mean, there's a few different layers of biblical support. One is just that in the Genesis creation narrative, it's the garden is like a temple and there's no death in the temple. And so, um, and so in this world that we have death, there's, there's a sense of disjuncture that this is not the way things are supposed to be. And then of course, the way in which Paul um, speaks about this um, is built upon this, that um, it's through sin that death came into the world. 
Now, there's also a cluster of questions that come up about that and evolution, and I actually have spoken a little bit about that before, not written about it. It's just a lot of open about, areas. About, about pre-fall death? Yeah, yeah. I yeah, think there are yeah, gotcha. ways to, to, to pull it off um, theologically. But I think that there's a lot of truth to this Augustinian instinct to say, death is an enemy. And that was really the main view that I assumed in my Rejoicing and Lament book. And I would say, as I reviewed the literature on uh, mortality, Christian literature, um, the vast majority of, of them um, assumed an Augustinian view. But then there's also some, there were some books that in the Christian literature that said, well, you know, death is natural. Um, death itself is a friend. And I was kind of puzzled, um, but intrigued by that. But I didn't really find a very helpful biblical entryway into that perspective until I encountered Irenaeus. So Irenaeus on this, he he's still willing to sit with Paul. I mean, he's a canonical reader. You can't just throw out Paul. Um, that death is a result of the fall. And yet... He has a lot of reflections on death and dying. And this is written in the context of martyrdom, not, you know, some sort of mid middle class privilege where the process of dying itself can be an instrument, a gift used by God for our growing up in Christ, for our maturation in Christ. That every time we lose a capacity, if you've been with someone who's 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 dying and they lose one, you know, their mobility and that sort of thing, it's an opportunity to surrender that to God in the sense that it was all from God anyway. <laughs> And so it can be an opportunity for sort of infants to grow. So he does have a whole different narrative, actually, of the Genesis account of the Genesis narrative. Adam and Eve were like infants or, or youngsters. And what I try to do with those is I don't try to give a, I don't try to completely settle the differences that come between Augustine and Irenaeus in terms of the Genesis narrative. Rather, I see that there's a whole texture of biblical sources and that support the two narratives, particularly on the New Testament side. The book of Hebrews, I think, is, is really complementary to Irenaeus. And I guess I'm, I'm kind of worried anyway about creating a, you know, narrative behind the text of the opening chapters of Genesis anyway. <laughs> and so I know that there are some people who are like, you know, either Augustine or Irenaeus. And I'm kind of like, well, I see, I can see the narrative illuminated within the biblical canon on both sides. And I end up saying it's not an either or, but all of our deaths to some extent will be on a continuum. There are certain deaths, like I think of the death of, you know, one of the cancer patients who I got to know who was six. We kind of bonded because we were both going through stem cell transplant, um, but but yeah, he 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 died after his transplant, and yeah, there was a sting at his funeral, and there's a sting with his parents to this day, and 
um, if you try to narrate that in a way that is doesn't have Augustine or an Augustinian sense to it, that what Augustine highlights from the Bible, then I think it's actually can be quite dangerous. Um, if you just go to those parents and say, oh, well, he's in a better place and it's all for the better, that doesn't recognize the sting of death in a way that that that, that scripture does. On the other hand, I've had older friends who are longing to, to die. I mean, they're, they're not in a suicidal way, but they're, they're weary. They feel like they, like a number of Old Testament figures who have, you know, lived a long life and there's a certain arc of full of years, the arc of human life. Um, they are, they're grateful for life. They will continue to walk this path as long as the Lord gives them breath. But in all honesty, you know, their heart is aching for to die, to be with Christ, and to be with Christ in a different way than, than right now. And I think there's a place for both of those, and all of our deaths will be somewhere on those continuum, that continuum. That's at least how I, how I frame it. You talk a lot in the book about death denial, and I was wondering if you could just outline some of the ways that death denial works in our culture, um, both at a personal level and a national level. I was interested in both levels that you talk about. Yeah, so there's there are a number of different levels um, to this, as, as you say. Um, to some extent, all humans have always been, at least as far as we know in recorded history, inclined to um, live in their daily life in a way that denies their fragility and denies the reality of death. Psalm 90 and the prayer of Psalm 90 to um, help us, Lord, to number our days. I remember reading Luther and Calvin on that, that passage in the 16th century, and, you know, they just got really energized that, you know, people today live as if they're going to live for a thousand years and um, so forth. So in some sense, it's not new, but there are cultural forces that have made this even more extreme in our context. So even in the United States around 1940, most deaths took place in the home. And around the world, you still have this happening um, as a regular practice. But if you think for a moment about what it was like for you and your peers to grow up, think about how it might be different if in your own living room, you took care of grandpa and grandma while they were dying and were there with them when they died, maybe your brother or sister or a parent. It was normal for, for children to be basically hospice workers, what we would say hospice workers. And so in some ways, it sounds really counterintuitive to say we're in a death denial culture. It seems like it's all over the place. You know, headline here, headline, you know, be angry about this death, soup at this person about this death, or <laughs> that sort of thing. But a lot of those forces, including on in videos and movies and so forth, tend to treat death as if there's something shocking and a problem to be solved 
in a way that kind of subconsciously says to us, boy, you know, if death happens, that's something really extreme and crazy and something's out of control. <laughs> but when you actually get to know people who are dying in a very ordinary embodied way, you realize both that you have a lot to learn from them in that process, but they're also a mirror. Like you're, you're with yourself as a mortal creature. And so there have actually been sociological, it's actually a school of sociology I've really gotten into in this process called um, terror management theory. Um, it's a school of social psychology. But there have been studies shown that for people who actually have a lot of experience around people who are dying, like, you know, funeral directors or pastors or things like this, their fear of death actually does ease. And they are able to move into a place that for most of the general population, if you get a flash of the fear of death and the reality of death, these sociologists would describe it that there's a worldview tightening. I tend to give preference for my own ethnic group, my own religious group. I tighten, you know, there's a threat and so I pull in. But when you have a more natural embodied encounter with people who are, are dying, it can actually, you know, have the opposite effect. But I'm getting a little bit sidetracked from your question. Um, but basically, you know, the dying have been institutionalized. <laughs> so they are out of sight. They are out of this very embodied presence um, with us. And there are all sorts of aspects of our culture, whether it's the way we access our media through cell phones, everything is configured for us. You know, we are the center of the universe. It's like uh, our life stories about us being the star in a movie. And there's something about encountering death and the reality and the stubbornness of death that shakes us out of that. But we don't have the opportunity for that to happen. <laughs> so, you know, I'm a seminary professor and a lot of my students have never been to a funeral. And that's some of how, that was some of why even before the cancer diagnosis, I started to think about a book like this because I would have students come back after being in ministry saying, oh my goodness, like most of my theological questions are about death and dying because I didn't realize what it would mean to do 10 to 12 funerals a year and to be advising about whether grandpa should stay on the ventilator. And it wasn't part of their experience. And so as funerals themselves, you know, a funeral tenants has gone way down. Um, they tend to be very focused on a personal narrative of the person. And so there's less and less often are there actually bodies, the dead body at the funeral. So there's all sorts of tendencies that um, kind of make us Gnostic about <laughs> about all of this. Yeah, I remember my um, my sister lives in the Dominican Republic and it's always interesting to see how other cultures handle funerals and, and what their practices are. And she said, you know, one of the things that happens a lot is as a coffin goes by at a funeral, everyone sort of lifts up the, the lid of the coffin to look at the body. And, and that just, 
it's so striking. And um, I'm sure, you know, you've encountered different practices having been in Ethiopia and Uganda that you would have that physical contact, first of all. Um, and also the there's there's no taboo around lifting up a coffin to look and, and even the curiosity involved in that. Um, it, it's always struck me that that suggests a different relationship with death itself as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As opposed to, yeah, just embracing the reality that we are being present with a dead body. <laughs> it does not need to be morbid, but it's it's part of embracing a reality that we are mortal, but we're, we do our best to try to escape that. And um, yeah, like you said, I, I first encountered that when I was in East Africa and the biggest thing I noticed was just, I'm spending a lot of time going to funerals and funerals are really, really big deal here. And it just seems like a part of everyday life. I remember writing in my journal, it's like Enya, which is the staple food. I think what, uh, from a sort of world historical perspective, what's most remarkable about, about that is not what the Ugandans were doing, but that I had come from a culture where I was so isolated from death that I could feel, I could have that feeling. Right. And and I think you said something like the average family is going to a funeral a month, some, yeah, something yeah. Mm -hmm. ab about that frequently. And, and then thinking, how many f funerals do I average? And I don't, I don't know, maybe once every two years. Yeah, yeah. And that's that that is forming me in a different way than other cultures that have that kind of regular contact with with death. So as you obviously you've had to process this very personally um, with thinking about the way you raise your kids. And I don't know if you want to comment just on what you recommend for parents or communities that are thinking, hey, we want to live differently. Um, with a view to our death, what are some of the liturgies, the practices, the habits that you suggest and commend to people? Yeah, it's something that, as you mentioned, my wife Rachel and I were kind of forced to take seriously as we reflected on my diagnosis. And we had the sense that it's really not healthy for our kids to be isolated from death, and we don't want their first encounter with death to be my own death. And so, we did several things. One was just the simple set of practices around pets. When pets die, everything from my son's fish, which die pretty often, it <laughs> seems like. Um, there was a recent, there was just yesterday a fish died. And so um, they, before I came downstairs, actually they were talking about um, what they should, my son was making suggestions about how to make a little memorial. Um, and so, you know, just suggesting to them that we, um, and having them lead in how to pray and give thanks for the life of um, the pet. Um, and then a bigger one was the, our, our dog, our family dog. Yeah. I cried at that um, part of your book. Yeah. <laughs> I did, um, yeah. I cried at several, several points in the book. Oh, that was one of them. I was not sure about whether to include that story. It felt a little bit almost a little bit cheesy, but I did talk to quite a few people who had a beloved family pet growing up that their parents just, basically the dog just disappeared and the parents didn't really explain what happened and they're still wondering, you know, what what's going on? But we just decided that we wanted 
to, um, yeah, for the kids to be present um, for that. So when it came to a point where she was, our dog was at a point that she had to be put to sleep, we did that and the kids then came in, came in the room after um, that and I had prepared um, some prayers. But you know, the, our kids had been speculating about what would happen. My my son thought that the dog would just disappear from the house because we had been warning them that, you know, Max is really old and um, Max is going to die. But there was Max right there on the floor and still furry, but not the, not the same. And so while um, my wife got out a shovel and started digging in the backyard, I sat with the kids and grabbed Max's coat and we were all crying and praying. And I think things like that, where, where, whenever death, questions about death came up, we're just really not anxious. And we never had a sit down talk about this is what death is. But if they want to ask about death with Max, it was free to do so. So like every yeah, day. Yeah, you normalize the conversation. Yeah. Um, just about every day for probably a month, we had questions about death after Max's death. And then, but, and they can see the connections. Some of those times it would turn about questions um, about dying, uh, us dying. And I still remember a moment when my son was saying, I don't, you know, I'm scared. I don't want to be dead. And my daughter said, Nathaniel, you don't have to worry. You're not going to be there when you're dead, which was actually a really profound insight in, in some sense. Like, you're not going to be there with the dead, the dead body being sad about your dead body. But we also really sought out um, people, uh, older people and other people who were in the process of, of dying um, and not in a way just to make them our projects or something. But we, we asked at our church are there are there some people who could really use companionship? And a number of them were in nursing homes with um, in their last few years of life and you know just pretty pretty lonely. And so I would just visit them with the kids. And uh, the thing is that those were actually such joyful occasions. Um, they they gave so much to us like just the wisdom and joy that they had and seeing the kids. But it was also powerful to be with, I remember one of them was my daughter and I was with him and his final final words. We He was actively dying and we thought that he wasn't going to say anything more. But then we said the Lord's Prayer, which we would always say to, with him at the end. And he mouthed the Lord's Prayer with us. And... Um, and that was the last, you know, the last thing that he mouthed or, or said. And so um, I think parents sometimes think that death is something we should isolate our kids from. And I'm not at all in favor of, you know, showing our kids Rambo movies or something like that. Um, but I think the natural experience of of dying and making friend you know friends and companions with embodied people and dying is actually really really healthy both as people and as disciples of jesus hmm. todd i want to switch gears and uh, do a speed round with you 
And uh, so the idea is just to give an off-the-cuff response uh, to semi-serious questions. So I, I thought I'd ask a few questions about Holland, Michigan. And uh, I looked up on Wikipedia to, to figure this out. But Holland was settled in 1847 by Dutch Calvinist separatists. I was just wondering, would you consider yourself a Dutch Calvinist separatist? I would consider myself a... Uh... The, the middle term, I guess. <laughs> Calvinist. I'm Calvinist, but I'm not either Dutch or separatist, so. You, you don't have any Vander or anything like that in your in your last name. So, and uh, and you're, you're not a separatist either. Uh, no, I, I belong to actually the oldest, I think, continuous denomination in the United States. Um, it predates the American Revolution. So that I, um, since you read... Dr. Levinson, I have to tell you that as soon as I got this job at in Holland, Michigan, he had Rachel and I over for dinner and had nameplates for us where he, um, it was the Vanderbillings that he put <laughs> on the, on the Oh, that's great. In light of the pandemic we're experiencing right now, I'm wondering if you are aware of what happened. So Holland was founded in 1847. What happened in 1848 in Holland? I'm not aware. So they had a uh, smallpox epidemic. And here's what it said on Wikipedia. In consideration of the massive influx, settlers in the Ottawa County area decided to move the community as well as the Holland area Ottawa mission from Holland up to New uh, Northport via uh, boats and canoes. I'm not sure I fully understand what happened there, but I think like the smallpox epidemic came and they actually relocated temporarily, maybe upstream. So I found that interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, now, uh, as someone, I'm sure you're interested in religious history of Holland. What Christian trend started in Holland, Michigan in 1989? 1989. I'm yeah, not sure maybe uh, what would Jesus do? You got it. I, I must have had that somewhere in the deep recesses, and I thought 80s with that. Exactly. So the city is home to the church that started the trend of what would Jesus do? Bracelets. Yeah, bra bracelets. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, there we go. That's a claim to fame. Did you ever wear one? I think I probably did when I was in okay. high school. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you were, well, it's, you weren't, you weren't in Holland then, but. Um, yeah, it was not as loyalty to Holland, but yeah, loyalty yeah. to Jesus. So. What's the most significant book in theology in the last 50 years? 50 years. Well, I would say the most significant book um, was, maybe this is a way of weaseling out of it, but I would say it's um, Her, um, Herman Bavink's um, Reformed Dogmatics. It wasn't written in the last 50 years, but it was translated in, in the last 50 years, and that's when it started to receive attention. Um, in fact, I know a, a friend of mine, who's in a nursing home here, wrote his dissertation and did his work in Dutch on Bavink. And it was ignored for decades and decades. Um, but then he became kind of like a celebrity scholar once it was translated in a critical edition in English. Got it. So he, he seems very popular right now. And uh, for those of us who have not read Bavink, what's the big deal? He is a very expansive theologian who is um, deeply Catholic in the little c sense of um, Catholic, you know, drawing upon the riches of early 
Christianity, early Christian Trinitarian and um, Christological thought, and very much wrestling with the issues of the modern age, including historical criticism of the Bible, you know, um, questions about whether miracles really happen, all of the sort of enlightenment questions. And he's in this sweet spot where he is never dismissive to the really significant modern challenges to the Christian faith. And yet he is always reading and rereading figures from um, the 4th century, the 16th century, the 17th century, never willing to just write them off. Um, and so he's in this very fertile, productive space, I think. And uh, what book would you say, other than the Bible, um, has impacted you the most? It doesn't have to be in theology. Probably the Brothers Karamazov. Hmm. It's a good pick. All right, knock, knock. Who's there? No one. No one who? All right, I've got another <laughs> knock, knock joke. All right, the, you start. Knock, knock. Who's there? Gorilla. Gorilla who? Now, am I supposed to make a joke out of it? I just looked <laughs> over and saw Goodnight Gorilla here on the shelf. Um, so. <laughs> yeah. All right. So the uh, I want you to do a book review, and I, I picked a random word from your book, and uh, I plugged it into Amazon Books. The, the book that came, I, I picked the word conscious. That's the word that my eyes fell on. Uh, and the book is The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership, A New Paradigm for Sustainable Success by Jim Dethmer, Diana Chapman et al. And um, here's a little write-up. You'll never see leadership the same way again after reading this book. These 15 commitments are a distillation of decades of work with CEOs and other leaders. They are radical or provocative for many. They have been game changers for us and for our clients. Okay, how many stars out of five do you give it? Wow, this is like the total dangers of being an academic where you just hear uh, a little bit about the book and you've already judged it. but And you review it, right? Yeah. I, to be honest, my first instinct it would be a one star. I don't want to be like a CEO. Not in my worst nightmare. <laughs> Uh, and, but we're, Todd, we're talking about decades of work with CEOs. Well, decades. And, you know. This is like, decades is nothing. If it hasn't been around for a few hundred years, it's probably not really worth your time. Yeah, that's true. As a, as a theologian uh, who's, who's steeped in history, I guess decades doesn't quite do it for you. Uh, even though they're radical and provocative. Yeah. Um, yeah. How do you solve a problem like Maria? Just playing that song again. It's such a great, great tune. Yeah, just play it. Um, back to your book. As I w was was reading your book, and, and one of the questions I had in the back of my mind that you, you actually did a, address uh, later in your book was how you personally relate to uh, Jesus' healing ministry. Because, you know, Jesus had a pretty success, a high success rate when it came to healing and performing healings. Um, you know, there are a few mentions that in certain towns he couldn't or didn't... Um, heal there. You know, it's often connected to a person's faith. How do you wrestle through that theologically, biblically? Um, are those texts that you grate against sometimes or how they're interpreted or? 
What's your approach? Yeah. On the one hand, they're texts that I love, but they are texts that I grate against in terms of how they are used. Because like a lot of cancer patients, um, I've had them used as a club <laughs> um, that, you know, just <laughs> quite, quite directly, you know, one person who I knew pretty well come, you know, came to me and said, cancer has already been healed and it's just up to you um, to um, have the faith to, to grab it. And it's not that I don't think that God can't um, heal. Um, I do think that most examples of healing are in the modern day are fundamentally ambiguous um, in the sense that there are there's both gratitude to God that can and should be given, and yet um, there's always ambiguities about what is in relation to what. <laughs> and particularly with my cancer, a lot of times people have said that sort of attributed faith as causing healing when they don't realize that like with my cancer, even if they did a complete scan of my body and saw no cancer at all, I would still stay on the chemo because um, according to oncologists, even if it's completely gone from your body, it's just as likely to come back and to come back just as quick. So it, and you know, the oncologist could be got wrong and I, I'd be happy, right? If, if they were wrong, but it's a, it puts a storyline on God that um, doesn't really fit. And I think that as I reflect on healing and praying for healing in the book, I really connect it with praying for our daily bodily needs, which I think we should pray for, um, including in the Lord's Prayer. I mean, I, I certainly sense there's, there's a sense in which praying for our daily bread has something more than our daily needs at stake as well. We're praying for our nourishment and a nourishment that will ultimately be um, only satisfied in um, the living bread and in the, the person who, in a sense, is the promised land in his own person, in Jesus. But we're also just praying um, for our daily needs because we are dependent creatures. And so whatever healing comes is a good gift to be thankful for. But it's not salvation. It's not the deliverance that we are hoping for. It's kind of like it's kind of like a small but good prayer. <laughs> and I think that so often the contemporary church thinks that praying for healing is like the ultimate prayer. <laughs> oh, this is, you know, we're going to go really deep here. We're going to pray for healing. Whereas even if it's Lazarus um, brought back to the dead, from the dead, that's not what our hope is. I mean, he started dying right away. Um, our our hope is ultimately for the kingdom of God to come, the presence of God to come, so that the whole creation will be like a temple for the Lord. And we can share in Christ's resurrection in, in such a way that there will be no more 
decay, not because we deserve it, but because we get to enter into this larger, wondrous cosmic story um, and reality of being in Christ filled with the Spirit. Um, that is the Grand Canyon of Christian hope. And we, when we talk about healing and we talk about different methods and are we saying, you know, the name of Jesus right? Or, you know, like what, what strikes me about uh, the gospel accounts of when, when Jesus talks about their, their faith, the people's faith, I don't see this in, in general terms as like an act of merit or, or something. But it's pointing to him. Like it's it's simply an instrument to access um, the word of life himself, the 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 temple come um, in in the flesh um, himself. And of course that will give life. But every healing we now have now is just a, a foretaste. It's to be celebrated, but it's a creational and and thus temporal. Um, gift that is vanishing. Yeah. Todd, I'm wondering if, if I could ask you to, if you'd be willing to read the prayer that you wrote on page 210 of your book, just as a sort of final encouragement to our listeners and um, as a way of kind of wrapping up what you've been talking about today. Lord, come visit us again, bringing with you the age to come that only you can bring. As once washed and fed in fellowship with you, O Christ, fill our collapsing bodies and our flawed congregations with your spirit to give us new life. May the spirit's work give the world glimpses of your kingship, your sacrificial love, your holy joy and blessedness. As your creatures, we give thanks for the wonders of creation, for each breath, for each taste of communion and fellowship. Until the final day, when dawn breaks upon us from on high and your will is done on earth as it is in heaven, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and through gave, grace gave us eternal comfort and good hope, comfort our hearts and strengthen us in every good work and word from Second Thessalonians. We pray all this through Jesus Christ. Amen. Todd, thanks so much for speaking with us today. It was great to chat, Matthew. Matt, thanks for having me on. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study slash donate.